0: HOOOOOO And welcome back to our second class in our series on Russia and the Battle of Gog Magog, recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'll be your teacher for this class that will seek to answer the question, Could Gog of Ezekiel 38 and 39 be alive today? In our previous class, we saw that war is nothing new to the nation of Israel, For God had told the people that a great war was still to come in the future during the seven-year tribulation. In our class, we learned why God chose Ezekiel to bring this prophecy of encouragement to the Hebrew exiles in Babylon in the 6th century BC. We then saw that the placement of chapters 38 and 39 indicated that the events of those chapters would occur as part of the restoration of Israel, first described in chapters 36 and 37, and that following the battle of Gog Magog and the tribulation, the messianic or millennial age would begin as described in chapters 40 to 43. That beginning will see the Lord return to Israel and enter the restored temple, to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years. Now, after we did a very brief overview of chapters 38 and 39, we focused upon verses 1 and 2, where we saw that God's message was given to Israel concerning their enemy Gog of the land of Magog. We next saw how Ezekiel used three names of God to distinguish when God was speaking to his beloved Jewish people using the personal, covenantal name, Lord, and when, with a different tone and purpose, he spoke as Master God to the heathen nations of the world. As we begin this study, I want to reiterate that our goals in this lesson are, first of all, to identify the participants in the battle to understand God's plan in detail for the battle, to determine when the battle will occur with respect to the rapture, the tribulation, and the return to the earth of the Lord, to understand God's purpose and what he wants to achieve by this battle, and to show how this prophecy glorifies God and fits in with God's plan of history. As we do this, we'll follow a literal or normal interpretation of Ezekiel and we'll reject the allegorical interpretations followed by many Bible students and interpreters today. Above all, I will attempt to show how these events are feasible in our day and what that means to you and to me as we study God's Word. You will recall that I will not name any contemporary people as Gog. I'm not going to identify this person and say, that must be Gog. But instead, we'll use living people as examples of what Gog might be like and how he may accomplish some of these tasks that cause him to come to this eventual battle. Finally, we'll relate the geographic lands of Ezekiel's day to to those nations that today are in the Middle East. Now, let us now turn to Ezekiel 38, beginning with verse 2, to see if Gog of the land of Magog may be alive in our day. Having refreshed our memories of class 1, now please turn with me to Ezekiel 38, verse 2. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2, and we read, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. You see here, God addresses his prophecy to Ezekiel, the son of man, a title that God uses over 93 times in this book of Ezekiel. In doing this, God does this to emphasize Ezekiel's humanity in relation to God himself. Now remember, God has a special relationship to his people Israel, for above all, he is their loving Lord. As such, the Hebrews and we are to understand that Ezekiel is merely the human writer and we are to focus upon almighty God as the source of this prophecy and because of this it is no mere the what is prophesied or the comfort offered Israel it is no mere human's wishful thinking or hope for outcome for Israel but it is in fact Ezekiel's passing on to us the infallible prophecy of Almighty God, the one who can accomplish what he says he will do. Having called his prophet, uh, God commands him now to set thy face against Gog. This is a significant phrase used in Ezekiel. It is unique to the book of Ezekiel. Of the 11 times that God commands Ezekiel and refers to setting his face, six times it is against specific individuals or groups of people. We find in Ezekiel 28, verse 21, Zidon, that's a Phoenician city. In Ezekiel 4, 7, we see it is against a prophetess. In 25, 2, the Amorites. 29, 2, against Pharaoh 35-2 against Mount Seir and finally here in Ezekiel 38 against Gog. In all 11 instances, the setting of one's face against indicates God's declaration of his approaching judgment that is directed toward a particular individual or a group. For example, over in Ezekiel 28, just turn back a few pages if you will with me to Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, if we begin in verse 21. Son of man, set thy face against Zidon and prophesy against it and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Zidon, and I will be glorified in the midst of thee. <clears throat> Excuse me. O Zidon, and they shall know that I am the Lord, When I shall have executed judgments in her and shall be sanctified in her. For I will send into her pestilence and blood into her street. The wounded shall be judged in the midst of her by the sword upon her on every side and they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord. Now back in Ezekiel 38 in verses 2 and 3 God proclaims a judgment here against someone called Gog and who will be from the land of Magog. So back in Ezekiel 38, in verse 3, God's emphasizing this coming judgment by repeating that he is against Gog. Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, since Gog is the major player in this battle against Israel, we need to consider who he might be and if it is feasible that these events could happen in our time. To do this, we're going to consider three possibilities as to Gog's identity. The first possibility we will consider is could Gog be the personal proper name of a specific individual? Secondly, Gog may be a symbolic or a placeholder name or a title for a person. And finally, we'll consider could Gog be the actual name of a demonic prince under Satan's leadership, a demon who in turn motivates and or indwells a human national leader to come against Israel. Okay, let's now consider these three possibilities in a little more detail. We'll consider first possibility a personal proper name. Now, I want you to know, I've done a lot of research. I have checked the most popular baby names of recent years. Now, while I find several names taken from the Bible, in fact, number two use was Noah, number five was Jacob, I can find no indication that anyone ever chose to name their baby Gog. Do you know anyone named Gog? Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Gog. You see, this scarcity in the use of this name is also found that it's evident in the Bible, where the name appears in only three books of the Bible. It appears in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 4, as the name of one of Reuben's descendants. It appears here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and again in Revelation chapter 20 verse 8. Now, students of the Bible have not been able to find any specific linkage between the Gog of Chronicles and the Gog mentioned in Ezekiel and Revelation. With this scarcity and the lack of linkage and real clear designation, I think we're going to rule out that Gog is a proper name. Now, our second possibility is a symbolic or placeholder name. This most common view is that Gog is a name chosen by Ezekiel as a symbolic or placeholder name for the leader of the land of Magog. Now, there's a similar use of a placeholder name in our Bible. That usage is in the prophecy that refers to the person of named the antichrist now certainly nobody would name his or her child the antichrist yet one day a real person will appear on the world scene and will be characterized as the antichrist thus the name antichrist is used as a placeholder for a name not yet known and a person not yet revealed they will have certainly a personal name but they will fulfill and be, in fact, the characteristics the Bible describes of the person that is given the placeholder name Antichrist. Now, based upon Ezekiel and John's use of the name, we conclude that if Gog is a placeholder name, then Gog represents a future historical person who is opposed to both God and the people of Israel. Now there's a third possibility that this is a name for a demonic prince. That Gog is a demonic prince who is over or controlling the land of Magog and specifically the regions of that include Meshek and Tubal. Our English translations of the word prince often say prince, when in fact it can reflect one of 20 different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. So we've got to be careful that we just don't apply a single meaning to the word prince throughout the Old Testament, not when there are 20 different Hebrew words. Now, of the two primary uses of the word prince in the Bible, Ezekiel uses it in the sense of one who exercises control or dominion over others. One who exercises control or dominion over others. This usage is well demonstrated by Ezekiel's contemporary Daniel, another prophet of the same era. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 10, if you will. And we're going to see this similar use of the word prince and actually find that a prince is clearly defined for us the way Ezekiel uses it and the way Daniel uses it. So if you've turned to chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 11, and we're going to see the familiar story of God sending a messenger to Daniel. So beginning in verse 11, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he has spoken his word unto me, I stood trembling. Now look in verse 12. Then said this messenger, said he unto me, that's Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, and thy words were heard, I am come for thy words. Now, notice carefully verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia hinders this angelic messenger for 21 days. And then finally, a chief prince that's named Michael helps Daniel's angelic messenger. Notice Again, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 20 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people, and there's our familiar term, in the latter days. Now, looking back at Jude Verse 9, we find that Jude identifies the same Michael as the archangel of God. From these verses, in Daniel, we find five distinct groupings of beings. First of all, we have Daniel. We know Daniel's a human being. Then we have this messenger from God. We presume that a messenger from God is an angel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, we don't know for sure what he is yet. But we do Michael, one of the chief princes, the archangel. And then we have a reference to the kings of Persia to be determined as either humans or angels. Now, carefully notice in these verses, in verse 13, that God distinguishes between the prince of the kingdom of Persia And then later in the verse, he speaks of the kings of Persia. We believe that because God changed the names and distinguishes that, that the prince and kings are not the same uh, characteristic or the same beings uh, as each other. We presume a prince is not a king. Therefore, we see two different types of controlling or ruling beings in verse 13. At the time of Daniel's writing, taken in the most obvious and normal sense, remember that's how we said we're going to interpret both Ezekiel and now Daniel, the kings of Persia would be simply Cyrus and his sub-kings. When Daniel wrote Kings of Persia, he knew it was Cyrus, and Cyrus had many sub kings under him so the obvious sense is that the final reference in verse 13 to the kings of Persia are to these literal human kings furthermore we know in the Bible angels are never called kings therefore I conclude the kings of Persia are humans and are distinguished from the princes whatever they are in this passage now Reynolds showers a noted theologian takes this same position and states that angels, and I quote, are assigned by God and Satan to positions of authority over nations. You see that? Angels are given control, ruling authority over nations. Now, Franz Delisch, a well-respected commentator of the 19th century, he observes that a role of angels, one of their roles, is to, and I quote, contend for the rule over nations and kingdoms, either to guide them in the way of God or to lead them astray from God. Now, since Daniel, the prince, fights against the archangel Michael, and in Jude, Michael, as an angel, fights against Satan, also an angel, the prince in Ezekiel most likely is a fallen angel or demon, Fighting God's righteous angels. Apparently, now, God sends Michael and Satan sends his chief prince of Persia to this conflict of Daniel that we see recorded here in Daniel chapter 10. Interestingly, in Revelation in the latter days, we again see one of Michael's key roles is to fight for the welfare of God's chosen people, the Israelites. That's found in chapter 12 of Revelation. Now, in this same passage back in Daniel chapter 10, in verse 20, we find another prince linked to that of Persia. This one, though, is the prince of Greece. Again, prince, not king, prince. This would seem to indicate that many nations have demonic angels seeking to or actually influencing the running of nations. Based on this, we conclude that these passages from Daniel reveal that these holy and evil angelic princes wage war against each other over the affairs of nations. You may also recall that in the New Testament, Satan is also called the prince of the power of air in Ephesians 2.2. I actually find it quite exciting to be given this insight into the world of unseen warfare going on all around us in the globe and its effect upon global events. Furthermore, it confirms what Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We find that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Consequently, I would suggest that Gog is a demonic angel whose dominion is the land of Magog and he is under Satan's leadership. Interestingly, taking this view solves another problem of scripture. You'll recall that the name of Gog appears both in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Both instances involved in latter-day events. Now, some believe that these two passages really are referring to the exact same event. Now, we'll go into this more extensively in a later class, but I would note at this point, I, along with many Bible teachers, believe that these two different battles involving Gog take place a thousand years apart. Now, we base this on the fact that Gog's allies that are named in Ezekiel are not named again in Revelation, and that would suggest that we have two different armies under the leadership of Gog. Therefore, if they are two events and they are Israel's enemies in both and that enemy is led by an individual named Gog, then Gog could only be a fallen angel for no unrighteous human being will live for a thousand years. Most likely, Gog is an evil angel who motivates actions against God's people by using a human being a human leader as his instrument in both times of history, the Ezekiel event and the Revelation event. Since Gog would indwell this individual, we will use the name Gog interchangeably for both the angel and the human that he uses as his agent. The fact now that in Ezekiel 39, verse 11, describes the burial of Gog is not a problem to this concept. If we recognize that in that verse, Gog is the human agent that is identified by who? The indwelling angel. You see, God uses the term Gog to show us the person being led, but really it's referring to the name of the angel who is indwelling that human. It is the human agent that is buried in Ezekiel 39 and not the angelic Gog. Now, just as Michael is the guardian of the nation of Israel, so too Gog could well be the evil angel that opposes the nation of Israel. Having considered Gog, we must now determine the domain of this evil angel. Once we do that, we're going to look for possible scenarios demonstrating the feasibility that these events could take place in our day. Certainly, Magog is a strange name to us today. Where in our world is the land of Magog? Well, in the 15th century BC, a Babylonian king corresponded with an Egyptian pharaoh. In that early correspondence, he refers to the land of Magog. And he refers to it as the land where there's a barbaric tribe living in the north. And he specifically says in the vicinity of the Black Sea. This land of Magog is linked now with the Scythian people's group that lived in the north near the Black Sea. Back in Genesis 10, verse 2, it named Maegog as the son of Japheth, who was the son of Noah. Based on the table of nations of Genesis 10, this too would correspond, again, with the land of the Scythians. Now, ancient historians, Josephus, who lived in the first century A.D., And Jerome, who lived in the 4th century, a prominent church leader, uh, taught that the Scythians were descendants from Magog. From these and other ancient writings, we know that the Scythians lived during the time of Ezekiel in the land of Magog around the Black Sea. These people migrated north originally from Persia to the Pontic Steppe or the Transcaucasian region, which again is the Black Sea area. The name Scythe derives from an ancient Indo-European word for archer. And as we'll study this Ezekiel passage in 38, we'll see what an appropriate name for those people, the Scythians. History also records their extensive skills with mounted horseback attacks using bows and arrows as suggested in Ezekiel 38 verse 4 and Ezekiel 39 verse 3 where horses and bows and arrows are again referenced. Another ancient historian of the 5th century BC, Herodotus, gave the first detailed descriptions of the Scythians. He, of course, located them on the north coast of the Black Sea. Thus, the Scythian Empire was based primarily in the present-day steppes of southeastern Ukraine, Crimea, and eastern Russia back in Ezekiel's day. It was these people that played a leading role in the destruction of the Assyrian Empire in 612 B.C. when they sacked the city of Nineveh. We also note that Ezekiel declares Gog as the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, these are descendants of two of Noah's grandsons by his son Japheth, named in Genesis 10, again verse 2. The ancient Greeks called the people of Meshech the Moschai and the Syrians called them the Muski. Those people who settled in the area of Armenia where the borders of Russia, Iran, and Turkey converge. Areas that are much in our news today. Ezekiel tells us that Gog's army will come out of the north parts. Look in Ezekiel 38 and verse 15. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Out of the north parts. Now, in the Hebrew, it literally reads on the side of the north That's referred to again in 39 verse 2. This, the side of the north, is a Hebrew idiom. It means the furthest point going north possible, the extreme north, or if it refers to a mountain as it does elsewhere in the scripture, it means the highest possible place on the earth. So in the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39, it means to a place to the extreme north, Now, looking at any map, if we begin with Jerusalem, because Ezekiel's mindset and all Hebrews of his day would locate everything from Jerusalem, and we start in Jerusalem, we travel to the most northerly point going north on the globe. One comes to the last great big city, in fact, the largest population center north of Israel, that is Moscow having traveled through the land of the Scythians, if you will, to get to Moscow. Thus, Meshek is probably a reference to the region of today's Moscow. Now, if we take it just as a very general statement a north and kind of give it a bit of a, a broad intake, we also come to the last city as you go north before the Arctic, and that's St. Petersburg. And in a later lesson, you're going to learn how important St. Petersburg is to today's Russia and to today's leader of Russia. Now, so Meshek is probably a reference to Moscow or could be St. Petersburg. Tubal was located in what is now the central part of Turkey, again, a country well in our news. Based upon these ancient world references, Satan's Gog would probably be a Russian whose power and center would be Moscow, who would govern the land of Magog. And this would very close resemble today's Russian Federation, which is an alliance in existence today. That would also include parts of Turkey and Iran. Now, If we look at the Scythian Empire and consider today's countries that would have been part of that ancient empire uh, geographically, we find that that would have included southern Russia, the Ukraine, Kazakhstan, eastern Balkans, Kazakhstan, Kashgar, Afghanistan, eastern Iran, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, some portions of Romania, some portions of Bulgaria, and the Caucasus countries where Tubal once was located. Thus it may be possible that Magog was actually Gog's original kingdom that ultimately expanded to include Meshek and Tubal so that he could now be called the chief prince of these lands. Thus we conclude that Gog will be an individual of Russian origin who has conquered or influenced neighboring regions prior to the events of Ezekiel 38. Now, Ezekiel also informs us that Gog was prophesied earlier if you look at verse 17. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old times by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee, that's Gog, against them. Wow. There are other prophecies in the Bible about Gog. Now, the problem we have is that the name Gog doesn't appear in any of the writings of the other prophets. Since this name appears in no other books of prophecy, we have to assume assume that Ezekiel is referring to biblical passages that indirectly prophesy of Gog's coming. These prophecies speak of the ultimate destruction of Gog, of the ultimate destruction of Israel's enemies, which I believe would be centered in Gog. Now I've listed these in the accompanying chart that you'll see on your screen at this time. And so you can uh, look at those up and you can read the many prophecies that probably are referred to by Ezekiel here in chapter 38. Uh, As we look back in history, we find that perhaps the 7th century Assyrian Sennacherib, who was described by Isaiah in chapter 10, he sought to destroy Israel he was probably used by Gog, the demonic angel that throughout history has had an ongoing desire to destroy Israel. Now, this would fit my understanding of Gog's actions that continue on to the latter days in both Ezekiel 38 and a thousand years after that in Revelation chapter 20. Arno Gabriel a biblical scholar, links the events of Sennacherib that I've just referred to with God's future punishment, and I quote, of Israel's final invader and spoiler of his people, the one foreshadowed by the Assyrian Sennacherib. Now he bases that on Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12. Ah. Now, you see what I'm saying? Uh, other Bible scholars also go back they look based on Ezekiel's statement that other prophets have spoken about Gog. they go back and they look and they see Sennacherib they apply the apply the same concept that Gog is demonic angel who indwells and drives leaders of countries to attack Israel in summary then I believe God's human agent in the latter days will probably be a Russian either descended from the ancient Scythians or having some connection with that region of Russia. He will be of sufficient notoriety and leadership ability that will enable him to pull together a coalition of forces and direct those forces against Israel. Now, God's Hebraic repetition in verses 2 and 3 of setting the face against Gog suggests that this leader, and again, because of this Hebraism, suggests that this leader would have a haughty self-confidence, that this invader would think of himself as invincible. When we combine the characteristics of verses 4, 7, 12, and 15, we conclude what Gog will probably be like, or the human agent. He will be an influential world leader who is a skilled politician and military leader. He will be concerned for the economic and financial well-being of his nation. We'll see this later as we go through Ezekiel 38. Interestingly, he will also be a skilled horseman and will be connected to the ancient Scythians in some way as governor over that region. With this in mind, I'd like to offer a brief description of a world leader of our day that offers us an example, a foreshadowing, a picture of what we might expect to see by the behavior of Gog as he rises through his human agent to power and forming an alliance. In November of 2013, a relatively minor demonstration that was dubbed the Euro Maiden Protest took place in the Ukrainian city of Kiev. Initially, this demonstration attracted little attention among the world's press. But would, within three months, ignite world tensions and concerns that have continued down to our present day? At the heart of the issue was a seemingly minor proposed pre-association agreement between the European Union and the independent Ukrainian government. This agreement would be the Ukraine's first step on the path to becoming a member of the 28-state European Union. The Ukraine, formerly a part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, has been an independent democracy since the 1991 collapse of the USSR. Ukraine's long history has been one of division, subjugation, and domination by its neighbors. For the Ukrainian people, strife has always been a part of their lives throughout history. In the 17th and 18th century, Russia, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire divided the Ukraine into three parts. The 19th century saw it divided by Russia and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Freedom, though, came for a brief period after World War I, but ended with the German occupation of World War II. For most of the last half of the 20th century, it was under Russian domination. Its current period of independence is the longest in its history, a history well described by its name, Ukraine, which is translated as on the edge or borderland. The Ukraine lies in a very strategic location. It's located on the edge of other key countries, including Russia, Belarus, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Moldova. To understand the gathering of nations that will form the Gog-Magog alliance, we need to answer some key questions involving the relationship of Russia with those lands that were once the Scythian Empire. We're going to begin by focusing on the Ukraine. Following the year protests that led to the topping of the soviet influence government on January 16th of 2014, the Ukraine was not only on the edge geographically, but if you will, also on an edge of a cliff as to its unity, its freedom, and its future as a nation. The spark igniting this change of government was former President Yanukovych, rejection of the EU's proposed agreement and in so doing he exposed the very deep east-west division within his country. A division that was fermented by the European influences in the western part of the Ukraine and the Russian influences in the southeastern part of the Ukraine. You see the southeastern portion of the Ukraine was once part of the Scythian Empire or the land of Magog because of Russia's interest in the Ukraine, we have to answer the question of why do they care? Why is it important to Russia? Well, today an alliance called the Russian Federation that borders the Ukraine appears to be setting the stage for the Battle of Gog Magog. This federation began with the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1922. That was when 15 republics united, Russia with the Ukrainian, Bilo-Russian, and Transcaucas Soviet Socialist Republics. That's quite a mouthful. As a consequence of the economic and political turmoil of 1990, the Soviet Union dissolved in December of 1991. Following that breakup, a much-weakened alliance of 83 provinces formed around Mother Russia, as other former USS countries, including the Ukraine, went independent. The new federation was headed by Russia owing to its physical, geographic size, its military power, its economics, and the fact that Russians comprise the majority of the population. Unfortunately for the new federation, they faced severe trials from their very beginning. A combination of the financial crisis of 1998 and internal ethnic skirmishes and separatist Islamic insurrections of the 1990s resulted in this significantly weakened federation and also Russia. Today's federation is financially stressed. As Vladimir Putin came into power in 2000 presidential election, He realized that Russia's greatest export was the solution to the Federation's economic problems and also would enable it to reestablish Russia on the world scene as a world power. You see, to Putin, moving Russia back to the world stage is his major goal of life. Now, Russia's greatest export is its energy, oil, natural gas, coal, and nuclear power. They now comprise 20 to 25 percent of the Federation's total gross domestic product. The result is that the Federation has gained recognition today as the world's energy superpower. Building on his first term as president and its success, he was re-elected again in 2012. Putin and Russia are now regaining world status recognition and with it influencing world affairs russia is now the world's second largest supplier of natural gas it's sandwiched between the united states which is ranked first and the european union ranked third russia's status as energy producer of the world results in the fact that it is the number one gas in natural gas reserves and exportation it's number one in oil exporting, and oil production. In addition to the success in natural gas, Russia holds a significant place in world oil production and nuclear energy. Now, in order to maintain this position, Russia needs the loyalty and support of its neighbor, Ukraine. But today's Ukrainian instability has created fear in Russia's mind because of their neighborhood is threatened by that insecurity. Even a cursory look at the pipelines that transverse across the Ukraine clearly reveals that Russia depends upon a stable Ukraine, for it is those pipelines that carry their energy to their major customer of natural gas, The European Union now in addition to the pipelines the seaports of Odessa in the Ukraine and Sevastopol in the Crimea give Russia international its only international access to the world's energy markets through the Mediterranean Sea on a year-round basis you see geography is so important to the world's geopolitical situations for Russia Exports by sea are vital to its economy. But Russia has a problem during the winter. For its northern seaports on the Baltic Sea in the north, particularly St. Petersburg, are significantly affected during the brutal Russian winters. St. Petersburg, once called Petrograd and then Leningrad, is Russia's second largest city. We're going to hear more about St. Petersburg and Russia's Putin in a later class. Now, for Russia, the Mediterranean Sea via the Black Sea offers year-round export ability for Russia. Putin needs the Ukraine and the Crimea for their seaports to achieve ongoing economic growth of the economically weakened Russian Federation. Now, in addition to use the Ukraine as its energy pipeline to the world, Russia sees itself historically as the mother of its subordinate states and former union members, including the Ukraine. Now, these regions are of varying size, shapes, and importance in the world. Russian rule has always permitted a significant degree of governing independence within its 83 regions. Local mayors, governors, republic heads are free to rule as they see fit, as long as they remain loyal to the central federation's government located in the Kremlin. Only as these loyalties remain strong can the federation continue to grow economically, can solve its fundamental problems, and importantly, remain defensively secure. Throughout the federation's existence, These loyalties have been tested over and over and some regions such as Chechnya have drifted so far as to create internal wars for Russia. Thus, Kremlin's mindset is that at any time that instability is allowed within the Federation and those countries under its influence or border, the future existence of the Federation is endangered. This danger became very real during the financial crisis of 1998 as many regional leaders began signaling independent movements similar to those occurring in the Ukraine. Never forgotten by the Russian leadership, even for a minute, is the 1991 collapse of the USSR. Those memories continue to affect Kremlin actions regardless of world opinion or pressure that's why the sanctions against Russia because of Crimea have had minor effect in terms of the Russian government. And for the Russian people, they believe their life is one of hardship no matter what. So if times are real good, that's wonderful. But hey, we're back to normal, difficult times. So sanctions had no effect on Russia at that time. Now this explains many of Russia's leaders, Putin's actions on the world stage. In order to understand how Gog could move against Israel, we need to understand what would drive a leader like a Putin from the north to seek to attack Israel. That understanding involves an understanding of what is most important to the nation of Gog and how forces will move to bring about the Gog-Magog alliance. Since I believe that Gog's nation will be Russia, we need to have a better understanding of Russia and how today's world pressures may move it, if you will, toward Ezekiel 38 and 39. (music) To many people, the events in the Ukraine and Russia are not as important as the latest sports news or what's happening in the entertainment world of today. But from a biblical prophecy standpoint anything that happens in the area that once was the Scythian Empire, the land of Magog, could be very significant. For that reason, we're now going to consider some stage setting by both Russia and the European Union with respect to that land of Magog. A major consideration is the defense of Russia. Russia is not only seeking commercial gain, seeking power and influence, but also sees the Ukraine as vital to its national security, since the Ukraine represents an almost 1,000-mile defensible border to Mother Russia. Fearing Western powers for historical reasons, the Kremlin sees that its greatest weakness is its very size of that border, Twice in world history, Russia was invaded by Western Europe and those invading armies used the Ukraine. Militarily weakened as a result of the USSR breakup and needing to defend her total 40,000-mile border that goes all the way around Russia, military Russian leaders recognized the need to protect its historically demonstrated weakest link the border with Ukraine. You see, the uninhabitable wastelands and Arctic Sea on the northern border of Russia, that poses no threat to the defense of Russia. Nobody would invade from there. To our Western mindset, we've been raised to fear Russian aggression and never to consider the possibility of a European aggression toward Russia. At least, that's what I had been taught in school. And history of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s would support these fears. But now in the 21st century, we need to consider something that has been happening over the last 50 years, a gradual trend and movement that could cause fear for Russia. In May of 1948, the embryo of the European Union came into existence. That union, from six nations, would grow to its current 28-state union. Notice the growth, but notice also the direction of that expansion. Just for once, put yourself in Putin's chair in Moscow, observing the same things you just saw on the screen. Along with the development of the EU, We also need to look at the changing military scene of Europe. In April of 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, was formed to deal with the growing military threat to Europe created by the aggression of the USSR. They too began with six states. Today's NATO now is an organization of 28 independent countries united by a defense treaty. Again, pretend you are sitting in Moscow as you observe the geopolitical changes of Europe and the neighborhood around you. Did you see that movement? You see, in the Russian mindset, the danger of Europe's desire to conquer Russia for they believe it was just such a desire that led to the downfall of the Russian Empire under the Tsar in the 19th century. The EU's recent overtures, along with North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO's movements toward the Ukraine, both have asked the Ukraine to join with them, have reinforced Russian fears. Russia fears that after the Ukraine, Other border states could follow the lead of the Ukraine and be absorbed by NATO and the European Union. Now, when you say, well, oh, come on, do they really think that way? Remember, Russians also study history in their schools. Every Russian classroom teaches that the 19th century Napoleon invasion of Russia, their prime target was Moscow, and they learned that Napoleon's troops occupied and utilized the western region of, you guessed it, the Ukraine steppes prior to advancing and entering Russia. History repeated itself in the 1940s as Hitler again threatened Russia through the Ukraine. The lessons learned by Russia from these successful Invasions and then Russians need to repulse these two enemies. They've never been forgotten. Additionally, the Ukraine is all that allows Russian commercial and naval shipping year-round access to the Black Sea and to the rest of the world via the Mediterranean Sea. Militarily, Russia, from a naval standpoint, has to be able to have access through Ukraine to the Black Sea. I hope that this understanding of the Russian mentality in terms of their security helps explain much of the current turmoil over the Ukraine and may suggest why Russia would begin to build up its military preparedness, just as Ezekiel suggests in Ezekiel 38, verse 7, where he writes, Be thou prepared, Gog, Prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. In other words, prepare and bring your allies together and you take the lead. Now, not only does the Ukraine offer economic help to Russia's economic problems, but also the Ukraine is Russia's, if you will, soft underbelly strategically. Let me illustrate it in this way so that we can kind of put ourselves into the Russian mindset. Let's think of the Texas border between the United States and Mexico. What if the border, or worse yet, Texas, somehow were, oh, I know, Texas would never allow that, right? Well, just for the illustration, let's take it this way. Let's say that Texas somehow has come under the power of a group or a nation that is opposed to the United States. And the security of the rest of the United States depended entirely upon that border between Texas and the rest of the states. Do you see what I'm saying? The Ukraine is just in a similar position to Russia. Russia worries about the Ukraine. And based upon historical precedents, they might well have reason to worry. The Russian mindset today envisions that one day, either in the very near or distant future, an invasion will come through the Ukraine to attack Russia from Europe. Not if, but will come. Russia simply cannot allow that possibility to exist. Now, neither the thaw in the Cold War nor trade relations with Europe, will alter this view. For Russians always anticipate the future in their planning and was well said in Putin's own words, where he said, and I quote, One should never fear such threats. Only one thing works in such circumstances, to go on the offensive. Do you catch that? To go on the offensive. Putin says, when you have all these threats, Don't wait until they occur. That was the mistake in the past history when they were invaded. No, no, Putin says when you see them, go on the offensive. That could well speak to what we would see as to a driving force to the leader of the land of Magog of Ezekiel 38. As warned in his autobiography, and I quote, We will fight to keep our geographical and spiritual position. If they push us away, then we'll be forced to find allies and reinforce ourselves. That's a quote of Putin. To find allies and reinforce ourselves. Very similar to the pattern we would expect to see just prior to Ezekiel 38. In Putin's actions, we see a foreshadowing of how Gog may feel forces, form forces to create an alliance with the nation that Ezekiel names in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Thank you for joining me in this class. Please join me again for our next class on Russia and the Battle of Gog, Magog. That class will be webcast on September 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and then available 24-7 on demand beginning on September 28th. Now, if you have questions, please do not hesitate to contact us and we'll be sure to get our answers back to you in a timely manner. Please pray for us as we continue to produce special classes and these will be announced via our website or our CNBC newsletter. Be sure to go to our website, www.congdonministries.org, for more information. Now, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you again either here or in the air. Yeshua.